saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. This is Dan David back with you. I have the pack with us, the usual suspects, Matico, our producer, Carl, our sound engineer, God help us all. And we have our intern, Ethan, who is the most competent of us all. Today, we have a very special show. We're going to talk about Jack Ma and Alibaba. What's going on with Jack Ma? Where's Jack Ma? Where's Waldo? I've got a couple of people that we've talked to in the past that I can't think of anybody better than to discuss this with. Paul Gillis, who was on one of our past podcasts. It was a great podcast. If you didn't listen to it, please go back and listen to it. Paul is a professor of practice and co-director of the IMBA program at Gunghua School of Management at Peking University and a leading expert on auditing and accounting issues in China. The leading expert, in my opinion. Paul is a certified public accountant in the United States before joining Peking University as a partner at Price Waterhouse Coopers, my old job. Uh, <laughs> he was stationed in the United States, Singapore, and China, and he is a standing member uh, advisory group for the Public Accounting Oversight Board. We also have with us Herb Greenberg. Needs no introduction. He is a television personality and a star, contributor to CNBC, and currently co-founder of Pacific Square Research. It is a great research firm. You should subscribe to their analysis. Gentlemen, I have one question for you to start. And I know that, uh, Herb, you have written extensively on Alibaba, and I want to hear about that great report you did in 2015 that is so salient today. But my question for each of you, what the hell's going on with Jack Ma? Where's Jack Ma? You know, Jack hasn't been seen for like three months now. He's... uh, uh, he's he kind of disappeared after he did a speech where he uh, he took on the Chinese regulators and apparently pissed them off enough that they uh, canceled his IPO the next day for Ant and he hasn't been seen since and uh, nobody knows for sure where he is. We think he's probably just laying low. Well, let's talk about the incendiary comments that Jack Ma made. He said that the regulators in China were an old people's club governing by old rules and aren't well suited for tech innovation. Oh my God. (laughs) How is he still alive today? But that's what it takes. (laughs) That's what he said. And we hasn't been heard from since. What do you think Herb? Well, I think as, as, as somebody who knows zero about China, certainly relative to, uh, to Paul, um, as an outsider, I sit here and say, it looks like the obvious to somebody in this country where you say somebody says something, party swoops in, says, no, 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 you don't. Now that gets to the point of, okay, did they take him away? Or is he just, as they say, laying low? And according to um, CNBC the other day, he is uh, just laying low. Well, that's, that's the message. And I think we have to say to our listeners, it is not all that uncommon for a CEO 
who has made disparaging comments to just disappear. This kind of manifests in a couple different scenarios. If you're well-heeled enough, maybe famous enough like Jack Ma, you get put in a gilded cage, which is your apartment, and you can't leave, and you get a minder. If you're not, like Paul Gillis had pointed out in, in the past, you know, you get picked up for a drunk driving and they just throw you in jail and your family doesn't realize you're, you're in jail or not dead until they call the police and they say, no, he's in the drunk tank, he'll be there 30 days. That's kind of how it goes there. There is no due process. And I read yesterday that Jack Ma is apparently enjoying his supervision. <laughs> um, I, you know, I don't know what that means. I mean, he's embracing his supervision. Yes. Which, I, I don't know, I, you know, I guess that's like every one of us who's married, right? Where <laughs> you're just embracing your supervision. Uh, but he's doing it from a government perspective. I mean, what do you think this says to all of the other CEOs and tech billionaires in China? Paul? Well, there's a uh, there's a saying in China that sometimes you have to uh, kill a chicken to scare the monkeys. And uh, and I think that might be some of what's going on here is that when they want to make a change, uh, what they'll often do is make an example of somebody to scare everybody else into different behavior. You know, this whole private sector in China, and particularly the Internet sector, is kind of, is relatively new. It's about 20 years old now. And what we're seeing now is China's getting the kind of prosperity uh, that some of the things that these companies did to become successful are now starting to hurt. Uh, the common people, and they're threatening the primacy of the of the party. Uh, I think a lot of times the party liked these private businesses because they were moving faster, creating more jobs, uh, and growing faster than the state-owned enterprises were. So they encouraged them, but then they're they're getting now to be a little bit too big and a little bit too powerful. Uh, so I think they need to be uh, be controlled and put in their place. And so that's why we've seen in part some new regulations. Uh, designed to rein in their anti-competitive behavior. And I think we'll see greater political influence over these companies. I, I guess I'm reading that you don't think it's necessarily such a bad thing, you know, to kill a chicken to, to scare the monkeys? Well, I think some of the things, like some of the anti-competitive behavior uh, that we saw, you know, one of the things these platforms, the, the new antitrust rules that have been proposed uh, deal with the platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, like like Alibaba, which is basically a, a series of platforms. And what they've said is that these these companies are so big now, they're abusing their, their size and their power. And one of the most abusive things that they have done is they have gone to those who use the platform and say, okay, make your choice. You use our platform, you don't use anybody else's platform. Right. Uh, so if you're a restaurant and you want to sell your, uh, your, your food on online, you, you sell it on our platform, you don't put it on anybody else's platform. Now, that kind of behavior probably wouldn't be allowed in any other country in the world, uh, but it was allowed in China, and it was a lot of the secret to the success of these companies. And so that's going to end. And of course, so these companies are very vertically integrated. They got they do everything. You know, Alibaba's they've got uh, right. Ant doing the, uh, the finance, and they're loaning money to the companies, and they're they're investing money for the uh, for the consumers. They got grocery stores. Uh, they got cloud services. They got everything. Well, speaking on what you're talking about, and I've read this too that China's tired of the bullying and anti-competitive nature of companies like Alibaba. 
but they didn't seem to mind it when Alibaba pushed out, say, eBay or Amazon from China. They're basically locked out of that market because of the anti-competitive behavior of Alibaba back in 2012, 13, and 14. What do you think of that, Paul? Do you think that's true? Well, I, you know, I think China's changed a lot over the last 10 years. And, and what's happened is you've got a lot more prosperity uh, among a middle class that has come up. And I think that the party recognizes that their continued legitimacy is to help protect that middle class, uh, which is now being hurt much more and, and recognizes it and is much more vocal uh, when, they're, when they're taken advantage of by these companies. And so I think that's part of what's going on here is that they're, they're trying to rein in these companies because they've just gotten too big and too anti-competitive and, uh, and have abused customers. And uh, so I, but I think that's all generally pretty good. I guess my question is, is this fair play with foreign companies too, Paul? I mean, because they, you know, we've talked about before how they, they really basically moved eBay or Amazon out of China through anti-competitive behavior. Yeah, I mean, you go back to, to how, you know, Alibaba basically came about is uh, it was a pretty small company doing a, with a B2B website, putting American manufacturers in contact with Chinese uh, subcontractors, contract manufacturers to provide goods. And so that was a pretty simple business. Then it had a vision of getting into the uh, uh, B2C business and the C2C business. And eBay had come into China and was already doing that. And so Jack Ma, he had this little Chinese company trying to compete against foreign companies. He didn't really have much of a chance because he didn't really have the expertise. He didn't have the capital to do it. Uh, he got Yahoo uh, to, and, and SoftBank to give him a billion dollars, which seemed like an outrageous investment at the time. Turned out to be probably one of the best investments of all time was Yahoo's investment in Alibaba. And... Uh, what they did was they took that, Jack took that billion dollars, he gave them 80% of the company, he only kept 20% for himself. And then he uh, took that money, and he basically ran eBay out of the country. And, uh, you know, at the time, Med Goodman said, you know, hey, I, I'm all for competition, but I'm not for stupidity. And Jack was just giving things away in order to gain market share. And he basically made it impossible for them to do. I don't think you could do that again today. I think that, that even with a, neither a foreign company nor a domestic company could probably get away with that kind of behavior today. Uh, and in fact, they just cracked down on one of the things that Alibaba does is they would often sell groceries below the uh, cost of the groceries, selling goods below cost in order to bring customers in. Well, that just drives small retailers and small grocers out of business. And so they've cracked down on that. And they said they can't do that anymore. Uh, I don't know. You know, there are no foreign companies that have meaningful market shares in e-commerce. And exactly. there really are no meaningful foreign competitors to Alibaba. Should there be? Probably. But there aren't any. Well, when you say they couldn't do that today, I mean, are you talking about the anti-competitive behavior or how Jack Ma ended up stealing back Alibaba from SoftBank and Yahoo? Well, the way you stole it back, I don't think you could probably do that either, but that's kind of a different issue. Yeah. You know, what happened was when Jack Ma took Ant, the, uh, the financial arm of Alibaba, it was Alipay at the time, and he took it out of the Alibaba group, 
and uh, took it on his own. And, you know, what it was is Ant at that time was Alibaba Alipay, which is like a PayPal. It was uh, one of the leading, if not the leading uh, payment processor in China. And it was a wholly owned subsidiary of the Alibaba Group. Alibaba Group is a Cayman Islands company. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alipay was a subsidiary of the Alibaba Group. Uh, and the uh, Chinese came up with a rule back in the uh, early 2000s that said, hey, this third-party payment processors like PayPal are becoming a big deal in China, and they're not regulated. And so they decided, oh, well, we need to regulate these things. Because one thing that a bureaucrat, a Chinese bureaucrat can't stand is something that isn't regulated. So they stepped in and they said, okay, first thing is everybody come down and get a registration. And apparently Jack Ma went down to do that and then decided the the rules, if you were a foreign controlled one, the rules actually allowed for a foreign uh, ownership in a uh, one. And since Alibaba was a Cayman Islands company, it was effectively a foreign company. Uh, They said you can get a license, but you're subject to greater scrutiny. Uh, you'd have to do go through another review, and they'd also have to get state council approval to do it. Jack Ma either didn't want to do that or thought that that might be too cumbersome. So he basically bought the Aliba- Alipay out of the Alibaba group for about $25 million, when it was worth potentially $5 billion at the time. Yeah, good deal. It was a, and, and it was a really good deal, and he took it out, <laughs> and then— what he did was he he went to the board of Alibaba and he told them what he was doing. And what they told him apparently was that they're going to put it into a variable interest entity, which is a Chinese company uh, that is owned by a Chinese individual, but is controlled through contracts. And that's how most of these Chinese companies are set up mm-hmm. is with variable interest entities where they're controlled with contracts instead of with ownership. And that has become fairly routine. And uh, I can just imagine what the board meeting was like. You know, as Jerry Yang, the CEO of Yahoo at the time, was sitting there, as well as uh, the guy from SoftBank and, and the other board members. And I'm sure the lawyers came in and made an incredibly boring presentation about how uh, they needed to do this. And everybody just put their thumbs up and said yes. Now, later, Jerry Yang said he doesn't remember any of this stuff ever coming up. I mean, who uh, would? But I, I think... And who would? And I mean, I think it was probably presented as such a dry corporate issue that I'm sure no board member even remembered the discussion. I don't think I would have even if I had been been there doing it. Uh, So he gets into that stage where now Jack Ma owns the company, but it's controlled by contracts. Uh, The next stage is Jack unilaterally tears up the contracts on the basis that there was apparently going to be some problem with getting this license to be a third-party payment processor. That should not have been really, again, it shouldn't have been a problem. They just had to jump through some more hoops to do it. Uh, Yahoo didn't find out about it until suddenly the numbers aren't showing up in the, in the annual filings that the company's doing. So then they suddenly panicked, and then everybody's filing lawsuits back and forth. Now, when they get to the IPO, it was interesting that uh, at that point, uh, uh, the story changes a little bit. Now they say, oh, well, we, we took it out because potential regulation, even though there wasn't any regulation in place at the time that would have kept it from happening. 
but then they had to renegotiate a deal with Yahoo before they could do the Alibaba IPO to give them a cut of the action on uh, on Alipay. Yahoo really had no choice in the matter, correct? So, I mean, I guess they could have potentially blow, tried to really blow things up with lawsuits, but they eventually took a, a, a deal, uh, ineffectively kept Alibaba with some interest in Ant uh, going forward, although less than what they had before. And and there was a, basically a cap on a collar that they uh, they could get so much guaranteed and so much more if they did an IPO uh, on these kinds of things. And that got renegotiated a few times along the way down the road before the IPO. It got sweetened a little bit at the IPO time, apparently because the investment bankers insisted upon it. Uh, but it was really viewed at the time. This really panicked everybody that was an investor in China. Because they said, well, if Jack Ma can steal Alipay out of uh, uh, Alibaba Group, what stops every other Chinese uh, CEO from taking the company that he's got out? And Alibaba was pretty sensitive to that, that criticism, and they structured the remaining VIEs to try to keep most of the business in wholly owned subsidiaries and minimize the amount of assets that were in business that was conducted in the VIEs. And that was designed to try to make the uh, the risk to the shareholders less than it was. And they were actually one of the better ones at the time of their IPO in terms of how they had structured that uh, compared to a lot of the other companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, the risk was still there. Uh, there hasn't been any major blowups in VIE since then. And I think that, that a lot of the uh, CEOs are concerned that China might crack down if somebody were to do something like that again. So you have that whole situation, which is, as you put it, one of the greatest thefts of all time, and that's fine. But you call the regulators in China an old people's club, and you get put in a gilded cage. And that takes us up to their IPO uh, in, what was that, 2015? Herb, you wrote about that, right? Yeah, I did. I did. So what do you have to say about that? Well, I think everything Paul just said goes resonates and explains why the IPO happened the way it did and how Alibaba was able to get away with what we believe they got away with. And what I mean by that is that when the company went public, if you remember, uh, if you looked at the TV commentators, you looked at everybody who was just so excited about right. this deal. They kept saying, look at the numbers of this company. Look at those margins. How do they do this? Isn't it amazing? And they were all building this up as an amazing company from China, a legitimate company that has a real business going on with an amazing way to do business that Amazon hasn't figured out and you know eBay hadn't figured out and they were just the best at it. So we were sitting back and you have to remember, my, my business partner is a forensic accountant, a certified fraud examiner. This is uh, my business partner's Don Vickery and he's right. very good at this. And he, he screens, he just screens for stuff. Doesn't really care about what other people think, doesn't get excited. And one day he said, you know, I was looking at this Alibaba and it's really some odd things going on there, just out of the blue. And I said, what are you talking about? So he started digging deeper and he kept getting more. If a guy doesn't get excited, he was getting more excited and more excited. And we, we, we wrote a piece in June of 2015. And it was just the headline of the piece was questions, no answers. And we cited several 
traditional accounting issues, large increases in loan receivables and investments in equity investees. We noted there were skyrocketing losses in equity investees. Notice equity investees keeps uh, showing up and disappearing loan receivables. And we wrote this piece and we let it just simmer. And then Don started doing more work and more work and more work, digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole until October, when we published a much broader piece where we said the headline was, should you, quote unquote, trust Alibaba? And the reason I say trust in quotation marks is because at that point, Alibaba was telling people, just trust us. That was, the, that was actually something Jack Moss said. I think he said it on CNBC. Just trust us. Well, you know. When anyone says, just trust us. Put your hand on your wallet. (laughs) As I said in in the China hustle, hang on to your wallet. That'll be my famous line. And that's actually uh, the way we approach this. And we started really getting much deeper into the accounting. And we really laid out what we thought was going on. And I think at that point, it was starting to resonate with us that what they were doing is they they were coming into the U.S., no one was vetting the accounting at with the IPO. And what they basically did is we feel they were able to come in, sort of pull the wool over investors' eyes, raise substantially more money than they could have ever raised had they had proper accounting. And then the rest is history. And as we started to raise more and more questions, the company came out then by then with their 20F. And when they came out with their 20F, and I'm just looking back here, uh, we we did something, you know, a month or two later. And at that point, what Alibaba would start doing is they talk about their ecosystem. And I, can't, I think they kept saying, you people don't understand us. And it was all this concept that they're doing things their way. And then they said, we're, they kept talking about their transparency. And we never felt these guys were transparent at all. In fact, we sent them a list of questions. We really wanted to oh, talk really? to them. It took, oh yeah, we sent them an entire list, many, many questions. It took them two weeks to get back to us. And once they got back to us, they said, we'll give you 30 minutes and we will answer your questions. Now you can't answer these questions in 30 minutes. So we had a phone call with their IR person, this lawyer, that lawyer, and the head of uh, one of the guys from China, he sort of ran their accounting. I forget what his title was. And they came in with a script answering our questions with the script, which is, you know, if it's a script that answers to the questions, yeah. it was basically like they were going through and they were saying nothing. It was all, it's in our, it's in our filings. It's in our file. Finally, my partner watching the clock tick, he just started asking questions and peppering them with questions and putting them on the spot, which of course they couldn't answer and they wouldn't answer. And they kept reverting back to their filings. So we knew at that point there were serious issues. And then fast forward a little bit of time, Joe Tsai was at a CNBC conference. And uh, he, I knew he was going to be at the conference. So I, you know, I had shared some of this with Jim Cramer, some of, uh, you know, what we had written, because by then there was, uh, I, I don't know if this was before or after the SEC investigation was launched, but we had done a lot of work and we found a lot of things they hadn't disclosed, a lot of inconsistencies just as time went on. And Joe Sai had the gall to say, and remember, he was Joe Sai's vice chairman. He's, he, he is the U.S face of, of Alibaba, away from Jack Ma. He is a former investment banker, highly regarded, very close to 
anybody he needs to be close to, very well liked, owns a basketball team. Everyone wants front row seats. Jim, Jim asked about our report. He said, you know, these guys are raising serious questions. And, and Josiah said, they did not read our, our filings. Yeah. And I went on CNBC and I said, not only have we read the filings and have we read the, the disclosures, but we've read so much, we know what they didn't disclose and should have disclosed. Right. And so when I came back through this whole thing, and I and I, and I then I listened to Paul and how he was talking about Alibaba, and I just go through the entire sphere of what happened. I realized that they basically in this country just came in thinking, hey, just let us do our thing and we'll build a big business. It doesn't matter if we cheat a little here, cheat a little there. I should say alleged cheat, alleged cheat, because the SEC investigation is still ongoing five plus years later. You're right. Um, but the fact is, they somehow were able to just come in and do it a way that I don't think a U.S. company could get away with, especially yeah. at the IPO. And I think the IPO is very important because, again, that was the launching pad. And that was the money that helped them get to the next level. And when you talk about reading their filings, this is no mean feat. Hey, their filings, I think the first pass was, what, 400 pages, and then it got up to 1,000? There was so much there, but you, you had to spend the time to try to pull it apart. And what I found very interesting was, at this point, Jim Chanos was also public on it. We were sort of parallel. You know, he was doing his work away from us. We were doing our work away from him. We came at it independently, and I thought it was interesting that you had two independent, at least two independent parties going along the same path, coming up with somewhat similar conclusions. And obviously he's using a different, different forensics and we're doing it ourselves. And I thought that itself was very interesting. And the fact that that could go on so long, both of us being very public about it, I was very public back then. I tend not to be public about our names, but that was when we were very public on. And you know, when we came out, I think the stock was originally 96, I was in Bilbao, Spain, uh, and and this whole SEC investigation uh, cracked, and I went on CNBC from the top of a cruise ship trying to just, you know, react to it at that, that day. The stock fell down to the 60s, I think, but then it took off. Yeah. And I can tell you that a lot of people who were betting against it and had been shorted ultimately went along it for the reason I think you would go along it, because it was the play on China. Mm -hmm. It was the play everybody wanted to be part of. And it actually ended up, I think, in some ways hurting our business, because I'll never forget one fund saying, you guys will always be known as the Alibaba guys. So I feel that we were out there shining a bright light on something that was very important, but in the end, I guess just didn't matter. And in this case, I think the broader issue of the play on China sort of transcended everything accounting-wise. And really, this was a case where you say, Maybe the accounting just didn't matter. That's kind of an analogy for every company in China. And we've been hearing since 2009 and 10 when we've had questions about some of the most salacial frauds that you just don't understand us. <laughs> you know, when you're asking about SAIC filings or whatever way back when, that's often the first answer. You just don't understand us. So when Jack Ma was saying that, I'm like, oh, no, here we go again. And I think, I think what they don't see the value in is you may not be able to prove that Alibaba is a fraud. It's so complex, with thousands of subsidiaries, no reason to have so many, in my opinion. Many of these are shells that do nothing. But you can't prove they're legitimate either. And you can do that with Amazon. 
I believe. I mean, I can prove through their filings and disclosures that Amazon is a legitimately run company with proper accounting. And I don't think the smartest people at MIT can prove that Alibaba does not make fraudulent transactions. It was a black box, but the issue is, I get back to this bigger issue, is did it matter? Does it matter? Will it matter? And I'm not, you know, I go back and I look at how people think when they make an investment. And when they make an investment, and, and, and this is why we don't do accounting frauds, we don't, won't focus on something that's just accounting related, because the investor mindset, certainly now, and certainly for many years now, is that just doesn't matter. And they right. just care about the fact this company is going to be a moneymaker or it's going to do what it has to do. And by the way, Alibaba changed their accounting. They subtly started changing all of the accounting, very subtly, pulling everything in. Expenses went off balance sheet, on balance sheet. But that was when it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that most people, all they cared about was this stock was going up and it was going to go higher and it was going to go much higher. And you have to participate in that because this is the proxy for China or became the proxy for China. I've often said, and I, and I feel it's just as true today, unfortunately for the American investor anyway, I can speak for, that we would rather make money on a fraud than lose money on the truth. And that's a problem. Nobody wants to lose money, even if it's true. Somebody says it's a fraud, as long as it's going up, it's fine. And quite frankly, even if the SEC investigation comes in on Alibaba and finds something dirty in there, it's just going to be a fine. I mean, it's not like it's not going to be a death penalty of any kind. So, and I think that's what's being factored into this. That takes us back to Ant Financial's IPO. Do we, I'm, <laughs> I guess we now know that Alipay could have been owned by foreign investors because they're doing an IPO or trying to do one in Hong Kong. Do we think this IPO will go forward? Uh, Paul, do you think it's going to go forward? In its current version, it's, it's or are they going to be Well, no, I think it's likely to go forward, but I think it's likely to be quite a different company by the time that, that it, it gets around to do that. And I think it might be another six months before they're able to put that together. Uh, and I think it'll be less profitable and won't be as valuable as the one before. Uh, because I think the regulators caught caught on to some of the ways that they were creating value, and that it, there was too much risk there, being uh, uh, on the on their financial system in China, and so they are going to require them to, if they want to be a bank, they're going to have to operate more like a bank and be subject to that same kind of regulation and those same kinds of reserve requirements and having skin in the game instead of just. Uh, you know, basically, this thing was like a big mortgage-backed uh, securities deal before, and I think that's going to be changed. Well, I, I hear part of what's happening now is that China wants all of their financial information by consumer to flow directly through to their banks and their credit rating system, uh, which they don't do now, which essentially means that China is going to have all your financial information, whether you're a foreign investor or a domestic investor, wherever you are, if you're using that payment system, they're going to have a great deal of information on you personally. Do you think that's going to be part of that deal? Well, yeah, I mean, I think what, what's going on here is, you know, a lot of the profitable business was making these unsecured loans to uh, loan shark type loans mm-hmm. uh, to individuals. And then uh, what Ant would do is, uh, is, is consolidate those, put them all together and then sell the package to a bank. 
fund. And I think what they're saying is the bank's taking that kind of risk. The bank's going to have to uh, uh, to basically fully understand everything that it's buying instead of just buying a package of consumer loans that are being being basically managed by uh, by by Ant. Uh, to uh, to do that, so I th- I think you know those changes are I don't think it's going to affect much on foreigners because I don't think they make loans to foreigners. These are loans that they're basically making to Chinese individuals and small businesses in China. You don't think any any foreigners have any businesses in China? Well, I don't think they're borrowing through these platforms. I, no. I I think I don't I wouldn't even know where to start to do it. I think one of the things you'd need to have. And this is one of the problems with foreigners using these systems in China is that you often need to have a, a local uh, ID card in order to, uh, to to use for the same name registration stuff. And it's just hard to do. You know, it, it's even hard to buy tickets to a uh, concert if you're a foreigner these days because they want real name registration. Is it, you're talking about the Hoku? Yeah, well, you get everyone's got an ID card, a national ID card, right? And it's got a, a long number on it, kind of like a social security number. And if you don't have that, that's how you register most things. Uh, and so, as a foreigner, you're using a passport, but a lot of the systems just don't accept that, mm-hmm. um, and so that information is just not available. So, I don't think there's probably too many foreigners' information that's actually going to be transmitted to the. Uh, uh, to the credit rating systems, which are you know that are run by the Chinese government, uh, so I don't I don't think there's really a huge security problem for Americans with what's going on there, you know, and and for most Chinese, they don't seem to be troubled by uh, by the big data collection that the Chinese are doing on them. Well, that's business as usual. I mean, they have a social credit score for Pete's sake. <laughs> they're they're used to it, and uh, they they think that's normal. Right. Paul, can they use Alibaba as a Trojan horse to get personal information um, on Alibaba users uh, outside of the country? If if you are using it from outside, yeah, you you could. They could get information. I don't think there's there there are really, honestly, that many users outside of China at present. They're trying to increase that. They're trying to right. use you know, more, do more sales and things outside. But it would be like if your Amazon purchase record was available to the government, uh, you know, that that is a breach of, of some secrecy, but I'm not sure for most people that really makes any real difference. I'm not sure it does either. And, you know, I when, it, when I read into this, and, you know, I appreciate what Herb is saying there, right? It is it is a plan of, of a more far-reaching goal Maybe not today, but 10 years from now or five years from now. And, uh, you know, I want to read something maybe nefarious into this, but really when I think about it, do I really believe the United States government doesn't collect all this information? Yeah, I would imagine if you went to buy 500 pounds of fertilizer on Amazon that uh, I would pretty much guess you'll get a visit from the FBI uh, pretty fast. (laughs) Yeah, I, I have all kinds of problems with, you know, China Communist Party and and some of the oppressive things they do. but. When it comes to this kind of financial data collection and really how pervasive fraud is among our banks, you know, I mean, who funds cartels and things of that nature? I mean, they, they use banks. I'm, I'm kind of a fan of a little more regulation, actually. So 
that I'm fine with. This week, uh, Trump issued a uh, executive order to basically ban Americans from using either the WeChat platform or the uh, Alipay platform for the payment systems. Basically, the argument behind that is that they're trying to protect the confidentiality of Americans' information. Uh, well, the only Americans who use those systems at present are Americans who live in China. Yeah. And if you take away their ability to use those systems, it makes life very difficult for Americans here because nobody uses cash in China anymore. You use WeChat Pay or Alipay for everything. I'm not a big fan sitting here today of executive orders from our fearless leader. <laughs> our listeners should know this is the day after there were, you know, um, unrest, we'll call it, in Washington, D.C. I would call it a fucking shit show with a bunch of morons. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what we expect when, you know, spend time burning down cities over the summer. And, you know, this is what you get. Unfortunately, it wasn't denounced properly by President Trump. Again, I don't know what we expect. I hope for something better in the next couple of weeks. I, I am a fan of some of the pushback that we've been giving China over the last four years, though, in all fairness. And I hope that that continues and that President Biden stays true to his word and brings in some of our allies for that. And it becomes more of a cohesive structure where we're all saying to China, like, you know, we need to we need to behave and and treat each other equally. At this point, it's, you know, an executive order two weeks into losing your administration that says you can't use WeChat, symbolic at best. I also see that there are some orders that maybe we're not going to be able to invest in Alibaba anymore or Tencent. And if you take if you take this idea that you can't invest in companies that do business with China's military, if you really take that down to the nth degree, then no, you can't you can't invest in Baidu either, right? Because they're the largest purchaser of AI. I'm pretty certain that uh, the Chinese military buys stuff on on. Alibaba. I, I mean, yeah. that's just impossible that they don't, because you just simply, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't buy stuff in right. China without using Taobao, I don't think. No, I don't think so either. So, you know, we've got to have something a little more thought out than, than a, a, a broad stroke or a broad brush. You know, the AI that, that Baidu has invested in over the last three years, I think they're the biggest investor in it over the last three years. That goes directly to the military. Of course it does. Um, they don't, they well, don't. Trump did a pretty good job, I think, of diagnosing the problem. He yeah. just did a very poor job of finding a solution to it. Or executing. Executing, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we get better execution going forward. Uh, and speaking of execution, we pray for you, Jack Ma. <laughs> we really do. We don't want that for you. Uh, we don't like what you've done in the past. We don't like how you've, you've run your business, but uh, we certainly don't wish you ill in that way. Uh, there was somebody, I believe, that was sentenced to death in China just this last week for stealing a mere $277 billion. You get promoted for doing that here. So I guess we could learn something <laughs> from China. Gentlemen, do you have anything else to say? Yeah, I, I, have, I have something. And I just wanted this has nothing to do with Alibaba. Mm -hmm. But since we're on the subject of China, mm -hmm. uh, it's something um, we've discussed off, off air, but I want to bring it on air. Okay. And that is... Given everything that's happened with Chinese investments, and we had the old days of the reverse mergers, which all imploded, we now have these Chinese Bitcoin miners. Yeah. 
And, and in looking, I only spent time on one mm-hmm. symbols, BT, BT. Yeah. I spent 10 minutes. Somebody told me to spend 20 minutes. I spent 10 minutes. And if I knew nothing else, I always have the same, if you knew nothing else, dot, dot, dot. Well, the, if you knew n- nothing else, dot, 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 would be that it's based in China and it's moved its headquarters to Flushing, New York. Uh, and then if you knew nothing, dot, 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 it's a former peer-to-peer lender that is now a Bitcoin miner that also allegedly operates a car rental company, mm-hmm. um, dot, dot, dot. Uh, yeah, what's the problem? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? And, and mobile. change it. I'm surprised they haven't changed their name to blockchain car rentals. Well, actually, <laughs> get their value they, way they, up. <laughs> they did change their name. They did change their name from something like gold, something or other to, you know, whatever it is, Bitcoin. I don't know what BTBT stands for. It doesn't matter. But the question is, after everything we've been through, yeah, how does this happen? And and Dan, given the work you've done on on the reverse mergers and the promotes and the frauds, what ultimately happens to these companies, to the stocks of these companies, to the investors that are right now making an enormous amount of money by bidding them up? It's musical chairs. If you're, you're the last one standing, you're wiped out. If you're trading in and out of it, you might be okay, but know that this is roulette. Uh, this company, you know, as you describe it, I don't know if it's BTBT or or whatever company that that engages in this, it goes to zero. And the people who make money are the executives in China who have committed fraud. And of course, we can't claw that money back because we have no bilateral investment treaty, no reciprocity. And it's a it's a binary proposition, Herb, right? I mean, we just talked about this. If you If you steal money in China from Chinese citizens, you can get the death penalty. If you steal from American citizens, you know, like like Ming Zhao from Putacol, you can get promoted to provincial Congress. So this Kennedy law that that affects largely accounting oversight is I'll say it's a good first step. It's nowhere near enough until there are hard rules in place that say we can't steal from you and you can't steal from us unabated without consequence. It's going to continue. You know, we'll be writing about, maybe we'll be writing about BTBT, who knows? But I know that, speaking of what we're talking about offline, I have three reports ready to go. And unfortunately, they're all China-related. And two of them are salacial frauds, in my opinion. I'm not going to necessarily come out there and just, like, say fraud in one paragraph and publish it. I'm going to explain that detail, but it just continues to happen, Herb. And are you, are you seeing the same thing, Paul, from, from China's end of it? What's, what is their motivation when yeah, you talk I mean, to them? I used to teach a, a class on valuations, and I haven't taught it in a couple of years because it became impossible. You know, there's no, there's no way to, to do a, a, a methodical valuation of a company because none of them make any sense. The values make no sense at all. And so I agree with you. A lot of them are, are sort of Ponzi schemes that should go to zero, but they haven't. Not in a long time, you know, and, and I've, I've been bearish on crypto for a long time, but uh, these companies continue to thrive. And look at what Bitcoin's you know, selling for these days. And, uh, you know, I, I keep expecting that someday everyone's going to wake up and these values are going to come back down to earth. Uh, but it hasn't happened. And uh, so I, uh, I, I, you know, I don't I don't have a, an answer to that question. 
Yeah, it, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is when it comes to valuations, yeah. you, I mean, it's it's full here. I run a, I, I have a small investment research business. Uh, valuation is the last thing for us to mention because it's it's irrelevant. I mean, it's a, what are you going to say? Yeah. Something trades at some sky high. That no one cares about that because in this market right yeah. now today, they want to basically if it's high, it's going to it's the old momentum. Name, it's going to go higher. They don't look at the numbers. They just want to. I think you know what it is. We, this is human nature. And everybody historically, I don't care if it's 99 in the market or I don't care if it's individual names. If there's something that feels bubble-esque, everybody thinks they will be the smartest one and get out early. They always do. They always think they're the smart. And that's the nature of Wall Street, right? Everybody's a genius. And, and, and some get it right. And some think they're overly smart. And that's the way it is. It has been, it will be, um, which is what may, makes these markets. Well, I, look, I think it has to be said between 10 years ago and today, the nano cap fraud of 10 years ago is now a $2 billion market cap fraud. And the last ones out of that fraud are going to be the passive investment vehicles that don't trade. So until that thing goes down 30% and one of these passive investment vehicles says, oh, okay, well, it's, it's, it's hit a mark where I have to sell. They're going to be in it. So it's going to affect the retiree to a greater degree than most active investors. And that's the shame of it because these frauds have gotten so big and the market caps are so big. It's no longer talking about a $50 million or $100 million nano cap. But it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter because the retiree isn't going to get affected. And I'll tell you why. Because that $2 billion in that large passive uh, index fund yeah. is, is probably just a drop in the bucket. So that that's, will probably have... It takes... You know, there are a lot of drops in the bucket, and then the bucket gets filled up. I mean... A little drop here and a little drop there? Well, look, I went through this with... You know, I, I, I would call CalPERS... And I would call Peasers, the retirement funds for Pennsylvania or, or California, and they'd be like, yeah, you know, we've invested in a few of these frauds. I mean, who hasn't? But overall, this is how much our investors made last year. Call it 7%, call it 5%, whatever. As if making another percent isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. And, you know, it's, it's about having fair markets for people. And the passive investors are really the most innocent of it all. And once you get past a billion, $2 billion, you hit that mark where passive investments start to rule that stock. So I think it's a pretty big problem, actually. And you, you have to be somebody that can move that stock down 20 or 30% for it to go to zero. Like Paul is saying, these, these, these companies don't go to zero anymore. That's why. The passive investments don't sell. And the other reason I'll tell you why the two of you may remember 10 years ago when there were allegations made, even by an anonymous short that were the valid allegations, NYSE or NASDAQ would halt that stock and investigate. They no longer do that hmm. for any reason. When's the last time you saw NASDAQ or NYSE halt one of these stocks on allegations of fraud and investigate? Eight years was Sinoforest NASDAQ? I think Sinoforest and uh, there was, was one Toronto. or two others. That was Toronto. Well, look. So what was? Yeah. Look, I, yeah. I look. There was. Geez, they halted was it. NQ. They halted it. I think they didn't halt NQ, but didn't 
uh, LNL Energy, the Longway Petroleum. Uh, there was Rhino. There was CCME. Rhino. You remember yeah. CCME, uh, China Media Express. All of these were halted and investigated and eventually found to be frauds and delisted. And none of them are anymore because, you know, you take Dear Consumer Electronics, which, you know, we investigated. They were a fraud, but they sued NASDAQ and won. And I think that it, it, NASDAQ may have jumped the gun. They weren't wrong ultimately, but, you know, they lost their lawsuit. And I think what, what they've found out, NICE and NASDAQ, is that if they halt a stock and they investigate, their chances of getting sued by the company are substantial. If they don't and they just let it play out, who's going to sue them? An investor? So that's what they do. They just let the markets play out. And again, when you've got passive investments holding these things up so much, it's hard for them to go to zero anymore, which is why you have so much volatile trading in day one and two. That's my take anyway, for what it's worth. All right, any more any more uh, ideas on what we think is going to happen with Jack Ma? Do we think he's going to make a miraculous recovery in the next month and be contrite? Uh, it seems like his CEO or the new chairman of the company was pretty contrite. It was this Eric Zhang. He said last week in the wake of the company's collapse in the IPO that Ant appreciated the guidance and help from the regulators <laughs> and is looking in the mirror, finding out our shortcomings and, and conducting a body checkup. We think Jack Ma is going to come out and echo those sentiment. I, I think that yeah. I would bet. Well, let, let me let me take a stab at this. I would bet that this period of silence, if you just think about it from a PR standpoint, period this period of silence gives him a chance to slowly emerge, as if nothing ever happened, mm -hmm. and life goes on. Now that's just my view. Uh, but I'm not in China. I mean, Paul, what are, what are they saying in China? Because he is super public there. I mean, he hangs out with Jet Li and Jackie Chan and does movies and kickboxing. And I mean, he's kind of a big deal there. Yeah, what I've been reading is, you know, people, everybody's just kind of curious that he has just really disappeared where he used to have a really high profile. He's just completely gone off the map. And, uh, and, and I think everyone's more confused about what's going on there than anything else. I don't think he's locked up. I think he is just in seclusion. Uh, the, uh, and, I, and I think uh, he's deliberately decided to take an incredibly low profile. Now, there is another shoe to drop, I think. And that is, it was mentioned earlier, and that's this SEC investigation on Alibaba. That's been going on for five years. And every time I, I pick up one of their uh, quarterly or annual reports, I, I always go and look and see if there's been any update. Same. And it's always the same language. You know, well, we've nothing's happened. Yeah, we have nothing to report. But they, they're looking at they were looking at the things that were driving the value, which was Alibaba was not consolidating its distrib its uh, distribution uh, delivery network. Uh, out because it, it said it didn't own it, even though it effectively controlled it, and later decided, okay, we'll consolidate it. Uh, so they have consolidated that. They wanted to keep all those assets and debt off the balance sheet. And then they, uh, they were playing games with the GMV, the gross merchandise value, which is what the analysts have all been using to measure the growth of the company, how much business goes through the platform, not how much money they earn. Nobody cares how much money they earn. 
All they cared about was how much business is being conducted on the platform. And uh, what was discovered is that Alibaba was doing some funny things there. They were selling 747s on the platform <laughs> uh, because it was As being used for, uh, for you know, like, you know, you go to Amazon and buy yourself a 747. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, and, and they also had, uh, they created an incentive system for their sellers that basically in order to get a high profile on their website, you needed to get your volume up. So they had a lot of sellers shipping empty boxes to themselves uh, yeah. just so they could get a shipment book Rushing. that they could show that they were having sales revenue. They would have to pay something for that, but that would get their ratings up. They'd show up on the page at a higher position, and then they'd get a lot more sales. And so the SEC figured that out. They started an investigation, um, and then nothing happens. Now, it probably could be because the SEC hired uh, – Jay Clayton, he was the Alibaba's IPO lawyer, yes. and uh, he became the SEC commissioner. And then suddenly the, the investigation goes on a stop for, for the last four years. Now Clayton's gone. Maybe it'll come back. I suspect that Alibaba did two things. One, they stopped releasing this GMB information on a, a, a constant basis. Uh, and, and I think that was an attempt to try to make the SEC back down on it. And then secondly, they consolidated Chinese. Uh, and so I think they tried to make the problem go away, but it apparently didn't make the problem go away. My suspicion is there's some kind of whistleblower letter and the SEC wants a scalp and they want, uh, they want somebody pretty senior and it may be all the way to Jack Ma. And, uh, now in that process, Jack Ma then also stepped down as the chairman of Alibaba, and I think that might have been related to the SEC investigation as well, or maybe Jack Ma just decided he wanted to uh, move on and do something different in his life. I don't know, but he hasn't been communicated that very well. No, no, I bet there, I bet there are quite a few whistleblower uh, applications in there. Herb's probably got one going on that. Uh, and yeah, I read the same risk disclosure, and it and it always kind of said to me, Jay Clayton is still the commissioner of the SEC, so we'll be fine. Uh, but now he's not. And yeah, this I think this would be a pretty the disclosure. Test. The disclosure hasn't changed uh, in no. all of these years. No, but we'll see. We'll see if the SEC takes my advice and makes Jim Chanos their next commissioner. Uh, I think that would be a good start. That would be a great 2021, in my opinion. But gentlemen, it's been great talking to you about Alibaba. I can't imagine two better people to have on here to discuss this. We wish the best for Jack Ma or anybody that gets put in their gilded cage. And we hope that Alibaba and China, for that matter, start disclosing a little more, a little more transparency. Don't tell us you have transparency. Show us you have transparency, and then we'll believe it. Thanks for having us. And uh, this is the Wolfpack saying thank you for joining us.